Well, hello there. My name is Matt Levon. I'd like to welcome you to the Foodscaper podcast, where we have conversations with edible landscape professionals. Companies that are trying to do the next right thing, trying to be involved in helping us build a more localized food system, a more inclusive food system. These are folks making their living, designing, installing, maintaining, food-producing, ecological landscapes for clients, for a living. So we've got Chris Growlert from Green City Growers, and he is talking to us in the Boston area from their incredible foodscaping company. And Chris, welcome to uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Very excited to be here, Matt. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you as well. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. You all at Green City Growers are doing some of the most inspiring foodscaping work that I have come across in, in my exploration of other companies doing this work. Um, I'd love to get a little bit of the lay of the land about Green City Growers. So introduce us to the company. Where are you located and and kind of your elevator pitch um, for what you all do? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so Green City Growers is a um, on-site food production, urban agriculture, food safe, foodscaping company. We're an uh, ESOP, an employee-owned company. We are a certified benefit corporation, uh, which means we are, you know, held to standards of, you know, verifiable social and environmental performance and transparency, uh, legal, legal accountability and you know balancing profit and purpose is what we're all about we we install and maintain and provide all kinds of different educational and engagement and wellness programming around on-site food production um indoor systems outdoor systems i think um last year we or this year actually we calculated we've done about we've We've touched about 190 different sites, which is a lot of sites. Some of those are just a couple times. Others might be over 100 times, depending on the kind of infrastructure. Mostly what we do is raise beds on the ground. So, you know, greater than 50% of those 180 sites are raised bed gardens that we fabricate in-house here and and um, build on site. So we can do farming as a service um, at those sites. The rest of them are either some sort of uh, rooftop or deck or indoor system, living wall, you know, ecological landscaping. We also manage some some larger infrastructure. When I say large, uh, acre sites or or large vertical farms as a service, as a custom service for um, for customers. And you know, really, our purpose is you know to provide. Uh, and inspire, you know, shared experiences for the, our different constituencies, whether it's the employees here, customers, you know, people in the community, all about educating and enabling people to grow food sustainably. Yeah, I love that mission. And and when we were talking earlier, um, before we started recording, you you were really telling me a little bit about the passion and that this this work is rooted in and you mentioned you know the the moments those and the magic and the community building I, i'd love to hear your more of your thoughts on on just that creating those moments and and the community and the importance of all that yeah sure i mean it, it happened to me i you know we had gardens as a kid but i started working very young 12 years old on farms and 
and uh, orchards and and the magic happened to me. And, you know, it's the only thing I ever knew that I wanted to do was work in those spaces. And then now I see it happen, um, you know, and I touch upon this throughout our conversation that, you know, we're so divided and, and we're working in, you know, in general, you know, people are so disconnected with the food system. 150 years ago, you know, the economic system was the farmstead, uh, 98% of the cases or so anyway, and now it's less than 2%. And what a better way to bring people together than, I don't think there's a better way to bring people together, certainly in my case anyway, than in a garden. And, it, you know, the magic that happens and the, you know, we're so divided so we can do real relationship and community building. Um, it's the right thing to do for the environment. It, it allows, you know, back to the purpose, it allows people control over their, their um, own, you know, destiny with food systems. It's, you know, people that work here feel like they're part of a larger cause, you know, around food insecurity and food injustice issues and that we can make a difference. Um and again, you know, we're a service provider um, that wants to be, you know, the trusted expert in on-site food production and farming as a service and foodscaping, urban agriculture. Will you slow down there? Because you've got some really great uh, language that you're using there. And, and I'd love to hear you just say that again slowly because that that's beautifully said. Yeah, we want to be the, 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 the trusted advisor sort of the, the go-to organization when it comes to, you know, food production on site, to growing your own food at whatever location you might have. You know, again, these this is not new technologies necessarily. Growing food has been happening for 10,000 years or more. And uh, so what we're taking is some more modern technologies in organic agriculture and incorporating them on site. So we want to be the experts there. I believe we are. We have the domain expertise to execute with a high quality product and a high quality service. So people, you know, the gardens look good. They're highly productive, you know, all the time. Yeah. Thanks for indulging me there with that repeat. But I think that the language around how we talk about this profession is so key in its evolution because you all have been around for a little while, but many of us are just starting out and, and talking about the importance of our role in this new economy, you know, is it's really helpful to have language around that. And certainly you all are translating all of these magical moments into a lot of different work that you're doing within the community, so many different institutions that you're working with. And, and I want to try to just clearly understand the dynamic that you all are carrying out that seems quite unique, which is that so much of your revenue is coming from educators and program managers who are out at sites that you have installed and you've previously gone there and built a garden. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. So the larger portion of our revenue comes from engagement, education, programming, events, um, you know, virtual and in person. So we have uh, a operations staff here that is fabricating all of our garden products and installing them and passing it off to a hort crew that's fully provisioned by a back-end hort staff um, as well. So I think we have 14 urban farmers on staff currently um, with a few more remote. 
Um, and so they are going out and gardening with, uh, or farming, uh, with the, uh, constituency that might be there, whether it's, uh, preschool age children, which we have curriculum, you know, pre-K through 12, you know, we have, uh, secondary education, university education, adult wellness and, and senior living, which is, you know, independent, assisted, and sensory care. So we have curriculum and programming materials for all of those different constituencies. And we have farmer educators and farmer programmers that go at a fixed time on a weekly basis to the site and work with this, the, the folks that want to come out and engage in gardening. Amazing. You all have had such inspiring kind of market market penetration there within so many different industries. I think you're really paving the way for what so many of us hope to do with our foodscaping work. So it's a lot of work, outbound sales. So, so, and then learning about those customers, learning what they want, what their needs are, and then fulfilling those needs. So having a customer success program that is directed towards, you know, being the, being the trusted advisor to that customer. And so many people want this, right? And, and execution is, is everything. Right. So we've got to be able to deliver to those expectations. The gardens have to look good and be productive all the time. That means we have to have a training program and, you know, and those those kinds of things. Um, and I think that's that's sort of don't give up. Never give up. It's possible. If you believe in your dream, go for it. There's there's uh, there's there's, you know, so many examples of of um, of. So it, of not doing that, I guess, or, you know, if, if you believe in it enough and you've got a good plan and you've got collaboration with people that are experienced and, and there's a demand for the, for the product, um, it can work. Um, examples of, of different pro projects. So um, I started with Boston Public Schools, um, or I mentioned Boston Public Schools. Uh, we have, I don't know, we'll, we'll have over 30 Boston public schools by the end of this year where we've installed and, and do garden education programming throughout the school year and throughout summer programming as well. And it's an example of, it took time and it's a very different transaction than it is when you're talking with a corporate campus customer, because it's really, it's securing funding, but then this, the, this, it's all about how can we make this program, this educational program, super impactful super inclusive um and we focus on that a lot and, and that's the fun part it's a little more transactional on a corporate side they need to have a corporate amenity that that fits in with their esg environmental social and governance plans moving forward which is a big part of what's driving some of the growth here um but ex again execution is everything so so school systems um working a lot of those, so there's a lot of different conversations with school staff and administration and teachers and then there's curriculum development in-house and then curriculum planning prior to doing lesson planning prior to doing every visit even so whereas the corporate campus when it's adult wellness let's say um it's a little bit different we have a standard size garden package we sort of have a standard plant palette you know the setup for irrigation and soil you know, we have a really good raised bed garden product that's going to last a long time. And, you know, we have an ops team that builds that out and we have a education staff or engagement programming staff that goes into the garden and just garden. So how cool is that? Right, man? I mean, we, you know, it's a big part of what attracts a lot of people is 
um, I just get to go garden all day with other people in the garden. And, and adult wellness is easier because there's more flexibility than there is children. And they can sort of decide what they're doing next week. Let's talk about, you know, hornworm control and, and, and tomato plant trellising next week. And then we sort of create little CSA distributions at a corporate campus. And then maybe a senior living. I was at one last week. It was raining. The farmer had prepared a bunch of um, dried flowers from the garden. And people in the memory care unit with dementia and Alzheimer's were painting with watercolors and painting with the petals of the flowers on pieces of paper. And it was amazing to sit in there and watch and talk to these people and, and, um, and watch this farmer engage with this, um, you know, which probably, <coughs> excuse me, could be, you know, sometimes a very monotonous lifestyle, bringing that different aspect and that different sensory experience is, is pretty cool. That is indeed. It's so different. So cool. And um, it, it sounds like what you offer that is so unique is not just the installation piece, but the follow-up education piece. And I think that that is probably uh, a really unique thing. And I imagine from s the point of view from some of these institutions, it's a really nice add-on because then they don't need to be solely responsible for the programming. Yeah, that that's absolutely right. So the larger part of our business is the farming as a service business, the maintenance and programming. The smaller part is the is the installation. You know, and, and I won't say it's a means to an end necessarily, because oftentimes, particularly with school systems, will involve the constituency. So students will come out and help with the build, even, and we explain all the systems in the build. And and there's plenty of stories, which really is awesome, uh, as I think about it, of people who have been involved, whether it's faculty or students, in a build at a school or somewhere, and gone home and built their own gardens. And it really, you know, it really you know, touches our purpose. You know, if we're enabling people and inspiring people to do this, we're participating in a more local food system. So, and then, yeah, but the larger piece of it is curriculum development and programming uh, for all of these different, you know, various range of customers we have. And so, yeah, the farming as a service piece is bigger. Interesting. So you call farming as a service piece that, that, human to human connection where mostly conversations are happening as opposed to moving of of plants and you know raised beds and and shovels yeah. and things like that yeah yeah so yeah we we program and, and scheduling is a beast you know weekly visits at that you know at you know 78 corporate campuses around eastern massachusetts connecticut rhode island and new york uh on a weekly basis so we have farmers that go to those sites at a fixed time and, a, you know, a group of people, a constituency will come out and work in the garden space with the farmer educator or the farmer programmer. Same with school, same with senior living, same. With, so, right, once the garden's in, we immediately pass it over to the farming staff, the horticulture staff, and begin, you know, programming. So the engagement includes the planting and maintaining and the crop protection and the fertility and plant training and of, of those, of those gardens, green city growers gardens. So those people who are going out to do this work, they have to both be plant people and people, people, because they got to be able to, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got to be able to identify that tomato hornworm, be able to talk about, you know, what organic management looks like and then lead a group of people in that conversation and engage them. Is that right? 
That is correct. Yeah, we have to have people that have some experience, at least a little bit of experience gardening. Sometimes it's been gardening at home. The parents always had a garden or they have gardens. And then we have a, a very robust uh, training program. And so we, you know, we just finished our weekly hort. Or more, we have an ED, an education meeting in the morning, early every Wednesday and not so early, but still early. We have a, a hort meeting where the whole team gets up and we go through housekeeping. We go through some ice breaking stuff around, you know, team building and culture and, and things. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I try to, um, I want to be of service here. This, I don't see myself as the big boss in some org chart and me telling people what to do. I, I want to help people to have, uh, you know, feel safe, feel included, feel like they're learning, feel like they're participating, feel like they're contributing to this. And if I, I've just got a little more experience, I've been, been around a few more 24 hour periods of time and, and, uh, and so I think I can help. I, I know a lot about the food system. So so we have those meetings on Wednesdays and we talk about, uh, you know, uh, that. We talk about some housekeeping things. We then go into sort of garden management. We're like right in the transition time, right? We're, 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 we're right in the, in the peak of when every single thing that's possibly could be happening in a garden is happening. Hmm. Weeds and harvesting and planting and fertilizing and no water and and all of that. And so we, and we talk about, you know, what's coming out of our greenhouse that's available to educators. And then we do, you know, show and tell of what we're seeing at the different garden sites and, and, and kind of what's going on. So it's a constant, you know, uh, uh, education and program internally as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just for our listeners, we are speaking in mid August right now, and we're going to be launching this down the road here. So it's, yeah, it is all happening right now. And this, this whole, for folks who aren't in our climate, cause I'm in a similar climate, you know, this is a time when tomatoes are starting to come on and cucumbers and everything else, but we're also planting kale and cabbage and lettuce right now. So, and of course the weeds are going crazy and, and rain's an issue. So yeah, yeah, there's so much underneath all that program management stuff. And I'm just kind of just baffled and amazed at how you all are making all that happen. I think it sounds like it all stands on the legs of your raised bed program and making sure that you have a streamlined system and a really quality product. And I'm wondering if we could talk more about what makes that work. And, you know, we can get sure. geeky here. I, I would love to know about type of lumber and sourcing of lumber, any hardware that makes things work for you all, where you're constructing uh, your garden beds and and any irrigation things that, that feel like they're working for you. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we, well, where do I start? We, we try to source uh, everything as locally as possible. So, for example, our main raised bed product is northern white cedar from a family-owned mill in Vermont, Kerber Family Farms, Clint Kerber. Um, do you know what the species brother. name is of that of that cedar? I do not. Northern white cedar okay. in Vermont. There's only going to be one kind, I think, up there. And uh, so um, then we, we have, you know, a key to bed construction is is, you know, staying power, right? So often, you know, uh, these beds are not inexpensive. 
And uh, but they're going to be around in 10 years. I mean, we warranty everything for three years. Stuff gets run into with the lawnmowers and things. But, you know, beds, you know, the beds, we build them with a a custom uh, patent pending uh, corner bracket that receives. So the corner bracket is made of steel fabricated in a a family owned um, radius manufacturing in in New Hampshire. Dan Deemers and his team, uh, they make our corner brackets and a lot of other sort of ancillary products that go on to the raised bed. So the corner bracket receives trellising, receives cold frame infrastructure, receives pest fencing infrastructure. So it's sort of a, you know, there's been a lot of thought over the years put into this. And and so um, the beds, we, you know, we don't fill a bed. We don't fill a 24-inch high bed with 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 gravel and soil. It's a, there's a false bottom. There's 12 inches of soil. I mean, for the most part, all vegetable gardens, unless we're doing fruit trees or other sort of, we do a lot of custom fabrication stuff as well, or, or some. You know, probably 20% of our business is custom uh, custom beds. You know, with different finishes and galvanized and fiberglass and reclaimed fencing and all different kinds of things. So we can really make them look all very different on the outside. So, but it's sort of on the inside what counts. Uh, and so this, there's a false bottom. They're hung off joists, just like you would see a floor in a building that's 12 inches of soil. So it's not a freezing up here in New England. Anyway, it's not a freezing thawing lump of, you know, of matter. They're also, they're not modular necessarily, but they can be moved, which happens often, particularly with real estate development and things like that. The beds can get moved. Um, and so, Soil is our own soil blend. We take all of our plant material is composted here, another local company called Black Earth Compost in Manchester, Massachusetts. And uh, we return all of our plant material there through another local composting company called Ciro, C-E-R-O. Great. All of these organizations are, organizations are fantastic companies that are trying to do the next right thing, trying to be involved in helping us build a more localized food system and more inclusive food system. And they all get, I mean, everybody we're working with that I mentioned there is, is totally into what we do and wants to participate in it and, and, and does extra stuff, you know, uh, to help us be successful. So uh, the soil blend is a soil blend that comes with the compost and top and uh, loam blend that they have at black earth. We amend it with with humix and some biologicals and some fertilizer and vermiculite and peat moss and some other things. Um, it works really well, and we augment that soil every year. It's part of the program with people to, to top that soil off. Irrigation is micro-aspirated. Uh, on some of the larger sites, we use overhead to you know for different things like spring mix and stuff like that. So we're using stuff you'd find in any you know, production, organic production, agriculture situation on those. And then in a raised bed, it's, you know, every bed. So the, so we're tapping in generally off of, if, you know, we sometimes can come off of a spigot and we have a way to contain that system and bring a larger buried line to each bed, come up inside the bed, have a valve there. So, you know, solenoids and valves and timers, just like you'd have in a lawn irrigation system. And then, you know, on the bed surface, you know, uh, running from regular netafim sort of 17 or 12 millimeter lines with a valve into more smaller easier to work around lines so we're not using stuff that you'd find in you know like horticultural landscaping this is all you know agricultural or stuff for growing food 
the intention and is very deliberate around that. The beds have trellises, the beds have coal frames, the beds have pest fencing that can of all different shapes and sizes and and ways depending on the pest pressure. You know, a lot of sites don't need it, and particularly in an urban setting, in a, you know, in downtown Cambridge or Boston, there's not, you know, generally not rabbits and squirrels. Although we're surprised sometimes, and You're I lucky. guess that's a good, yeah, yeah. But we have, we, you know, we have plenty of sites that they, all of the, all of the outside the city and suburbia and and in the, you know, the sort of the tech belt, the 128 belt. There's plenty of places with deer problems and things like that. So we have all different ways to completely mitigate uh, pests that are just that are just diversion you know fencing yeah yeah that seems to be the only way we've been able to properly keep them out is just with with good fencing if i can go back to that corner brace that you talked about the patent pending is that something that is is for sale local or you know online or is that a thing that you all have a specific relationship with? Give me a call afterwards. I'll get you a couple of those made up. They're, they're ours that we designed and we have them fabricated up in New Hampshire. So you know, I uh, joke and so, sometimes we sell them if people ask for them. But it, it is an important point to bring it back up. I mean, how often do you see a raised bed garden? that somebody went to a local lumber place and bought dug fur, a really unsustainable product from far away and used, you know, some sort of uh, lag bolt or something to kind of secure the corners. And 18 months later, it's Boeing and 24 months later, it's completely falling apart. And so securing those corners is a really, really key piece of, of uh, making the raised bed. Yeah, I think, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of people who have the gardening skills and maybe even the people skills and they're interested in, you know, scaling up their foodscaping business or just getting started, that whole piece of guaranteeing the product and knowing that they can stand behind the quality is really hard because they haven't been growing in gardens like this for the last 10 years. You know, somebody like me, I was in the market gardening and kind of, you know, permaculture gardening world. And so it, it was hard for me to develop the confidence. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any more to say on that, but. Sure. I mean, I think it's a really good point, Matt. I mean, so a lot the skill, I mean, look, I have an acre garden at my house and when my rototiller wouldn't start or the ripcord, I suppose I could fix it. Right. But I bring it to the local motor got repair small engine repair place and it's done right away or I, I have a guy now luckily that i found that comes and helps me with my equipment and so i can operate and you know i'm better at it in, in at operating the production as i am i don't i don't have the, don't have a ton of time as you can imagine and so so operating an acre garden in the backyard you know i guess i always say some people have horses you know i have an acre organic garden in the backyard um that i sell to local farm markets here um farm stands here um and so we have a full you asked earlier and it's good you're circling back on it we have a full operations crew here so we have a fabrication shop so the farmers aren't building anything right they're not running to home depot or wherever lowe's uh to pick up supplies to fix something if there's a problem that can't be you know if an irrigation line on the bed surface is snapped all the farmers have a kit with them that they can, you know, that they can quickly do a repair. But if it's beyond their repairing, you know, capabilities, they put a work order in and the off crew rolls. And if it's within the three year warranty, it's within and it's not something that was caused by negligence on the customer's part, you know, 
then then we 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 handle that ourselves and if it's beyond three years it's uh you know it's a billable a billable thing and so um yeah we have we have people skilled at fabricating stuff to you know these raised beds and other sorts of infrastructure and if we don't have them in-house we get them out but farmers are supported by a uh, really a two-person hort staff that just all the fertilizer and so everything is ready in their vehicles for them so they're not doing a lot of trying to figure out uh what their needs are on site we try to anticipate that as a service to the farmers because really the farmers are our best salespeople, right they're in front of literally thousands and thousands of people every year a couple few thousands children and another you know four or six thousand adults every year at all these sites yeah Wow. I, I would love to come out and see all these streamlined systems and how these things support each other. It sounds dreamy. You're welcome to come out. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean to, you know, it, it, back to your question earlier about advice, nothing's perfect, you know, and I, and I have a advisor and, and mentors that, that I go to with things. And sometimes if I'm frustrated, you know, I, man, am I doing everything I can to make sure and it's, and nothing happens overnight and nothing's perfect. And, and, and learning that, I guess, level of humility is an important thing in running a business that it's okay, that everything's not perfect, that it's okay that, you know, think problems happen. And, and sometimes these amazing serendipitous things happen when a problem arises and, and whatnot. But I mean, that's a, a little more touchy feely, but back to your question around, you know, advice to others, you know, these aren't by no means perfect systems and we're continually improving. We're, you know, we're essentially a bootstrap business. Um, and we, we, you know, we are um, looking at a strategic plan that might change that, uh, you know, so we can quicker build quickly, more quickly and effectively, you know, build out these systems with better resources and expertise. Wonderful. Well, I'll look forward to following along and see, seeing what happens with that potential scale up. I, I am curious. So do you, with this false bottom that you're talking about, you know, that mm -hmm. seems completely unique to any of the other foodscaping companies that I, that I follow. Are you saying, do you only build tall beds? Like if somebody wants a 12 inch garden bed, what do you do? We'll do that. Um, yeah, there is some, you know, we, we've built a lot of those in the past and, you know, another great benefit of the false bottom is is root intrusion mitigation and critter intrusion mitigation. There's a critter can't build a, you know, because of the way that the the bottom is, you know, is sealed with hardware cloth and and landscape fabric or some sort of horticultural fabric. Critters are not getting up inside, and so root intrusion and um, root intrusion and you know, critter intrusion. So we, so we generally try to push for where that could potentially be a problem. We try to push for a double raised bed. So that means a 24 inch bed as opposed to a 12 inch bed. And now there's a lot of surfaces we put 12 inch beds on, you know, so stone dust or, or a hard surface, or even in the ground, if it's in the middle of a lawn or a prepared site. Um, but uh, yeah, the recommendation for, for most clients is the double raised uh, the way that features can be attached, pest fencing, the workability of having it up off the ground, it drains off, you know, so drain it, you know, drain it really in, in agriculture. It's not about getting water on, it's about getting the right amount of water on. And so by having it a raised bed, it, it drains off the false bottom, excuse me, 
it drains off easily. So we can precise, you know, we can manage the water into the crop, uh, into the garden, uh, more effectively. And I also imagine that is a huge help for limiting the decomposition of the wood because you don't have right. all this water sitting against the contact. Wood. Yeah. So I think That's that exactly. false bottom, you know, makes a lot of sense, especially because we know from some of our work that the hardest, the, the first to rot areas are the places that water sits. Absolutely the truth. It's not a freezing and thawing lump of mass in the, you know, January 2nd, you know, and uh, it's, yes, it drains off. So when you have the soil in contract with the ground on a 12 inch raised bed, it's, it's as wet as the ground below it. Right. Yeah, there's airspace inside the, the false bottom. So another false bottom mechanism, and it's funny because this was one of the first urban farming projects I did was at River Park Farm in New York City, where I think the uh, the milk crate gardening started. And I've seen you all posting a lot of pictures with your uh, Fenway Park milk crate garden. Could you talk to us about that style of garden and just that whole project? Sure. Yeah, we can start uh, with that whole project. It was built with another local company called Recover Green Roofs. We work with Recover Green Roofs on some projects and we work with Apex Green Roofs on some projects. Um, in fact, with Apex, we just completed a project at the Boston Children's Museum, very similar project, modular milk crate project. So there's convenience to it, right? At Fenway Park, you know, the Boston Red Sox, the, the ownership and management of the Boston Red Sox are a huge supporter of sustainability initiatives and looking at ways they can be involved in, you know, helping to be a part of awareness around local food systems. And so ownership decided uh, in 2014 to do uh, this project. Um, and, you know, Fenway Park, so, so green roof, green roof infrastructure, um, vegetative roof infrastructure is a, why don't I start there? So there's a whole bunch of different kinds of green roof infrastructure, vegetative roof infrastructure. Most of the vegetative roof infrastructure that you hear about in the world is, is non-edible crops, large surfaces of area being covered by low water requirement plants like sedum and things like that, all the way up to meadows with much deeper growing media and then all kinds of different growing media. And then the infrastructure that's under that, under those those growing areas is generally, you know, some protection for the roof membrane and some drainage infrastructure. At Fenway, uh, so, so there's a big consideration always when talking about putting a vegetative roof on any structure, what's the bearing capacity of the building? Fenway was built, I think it's 1915, sorry if I got that wrong, but the, you know, that infrastructure was able to withstand the additional weight, which can be up to 100 pounds per square foot um, of soil at uh, full water holding capacity. Um, but this is a fairly straightforward system. There's uh, artificial, there's some protective material. We've, we've added some drainage mat in certain areas. We need to add more. And then it's modular milk crates with a standard, you know, irrigation system placed on top. Um, so there's convenience around it. Um, it's not, um, it can be moved, for example, if needed. And we actually, in some areas of the roof, we do move milk crates back in the wintertime to make room uh, for certain things. And so, um, you know, it's a huge 
huge deal uh, for us. It's a huge deal for the Red Sox, I think, in the community. I, I, you know, hundred thousand people or more. I forget how many see that garden every year and, and on every tour. Um, you know, the tour guides at Fenway Park talk about it. The food is donated to a local, another great local organization called Love and Spoonfuls, a food insecurity, food impact group. Here, we, we donate a a pretty big percentage of our uh, food crops. Some customers want us to donate it all, and it's great. And then uh, Aramark is the is the food service concession. We work with a crop plant. We work on a crop plan with them. Ron Abel, the chef. And uh, everything goes into the food service concession. And I think the, the you know, pre-COVID, or, but I think we're probably better. We're knocking off around 20% or better of, of uh, produce procurement, you know, um, for all of the uh, food service concessions inside Benway, including the private boxes and everything. Wow. Congratulations on getting in with Aramark. We've had many conversations with them at different corporate campuses, and I feel like the chefs are always like running for the hills when when we're uh, you know pitching them the idea of incorporating stuff that's growing outside into their into their cafeteria. Um, yeah, I think I, I don't know how to respond necessarily. I think mostly the, on the culinary side, we find a lot of enthusiasm. So we haven't necessarily seen that. But there's certainly some logistics around getting that done. When when a food service purveyor, the Sodexo Aramark, um, you know, has is sourcing its product on a consistent basis from a large you know distributor, um, it's not so easy to to as you know from your experience. You know, it's not so easy to um, forecast precisely the amounts of lettuce that are going to come in. So there has to be some flexibility in the menu and things like that. Totally. I I'm just think that project is so incredibly powerful as an exposure piece and a re just really beautiful. I have also seen images, correct me if I'm wrong, of more of a rooftop farm production in ground project at a whole foods roof. Is that correct? Yeah, so that is a former project of ours that, and actually the building was built specifically to have uh, uh, a what's called built-in-place or intensive. So, so Fenway would be considered like a modular system, uh, extensive system, and the term for a built-in-place systems meaning, you know, the roof substrate, whatever the roof's made of, steel or concrete protective layer and then some drainage infrastructure and another protective layer and the growing media. And so Whole Foods and WS Development um, is the owner of that property, uh, built that um, built that to have food production on the on the roof. They also built it to have engagement, which never happened. So in other words, there was supposed to be uh, in the original plans, there was an elevator going to the top and, and bringing community up. And then it was difficult to, so, so where the opportunities are with something like this is being able to get community engagement, being able to merchandise properly. And, and so there were some challenges around that with changes at Whole Foods. And so the roof is being not, no longer used for food production. I see. Can you tell us a little more about just that whole production model because one of the things that I see as really unique as a you know kind of farmers for hire that you all do is that a lot of other foodscaping companies aren't doing this and it and it 
fascinated me because I was coming from the market gardening world. And there's so many young market gardeners who are looking to transition that skill set. And maybe they would, you know, move to the city, move to Boston and, and manage a small production farm. I'm, I'm just curious of, to hear more of your thoughts on the, the growth potential and the job possibilities there for paid market gardeners for a for-profit company. Yeah, I mean, I think the big, let's look. The biggest challenge we face is is year round. People need jobs year round, so we're looking at all kinds of alternatives about how we can do that. Starting again with the bootstrap approach is is you know year round programming and events, and we do a lot of them now. So I think it's a pretty straightforward next step. There are there are plenty of customers and both educational, institutional, and private corporate that want to have you know virtual programming or even an educator come on site and do all kinds of different activities from pickling to you know creating you know the garden plan to uh culinary events to pollinator you know uh seed pod making for the spring to uh hydroponics so that's sort of the next thing down the line so i think there's a i'll take a step back and i'm going to go way back to the beginning we have got to come together we are divided in this world in a way that it's never been before. And the, the dismissiveness and the cancellation of um, wholesale of certain communities and certain philosophies and certain political doctrines based on uh, similar, you know, based on, uh, you know, singular judgments is and throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And it, I think people are probably familiar with that. And um, and then the sort of the, the vitriol and the ad hominem attacking of, of this is creating this uh, these silos, this divisiveness. And I see it across the spectrum. And I mentioned in, in our world of food systems, right, in the food system world, legacy agriculture has so much to bring to the table so there are rules of thumb you and i connected a little bit before we started talking today about mechanical cultivation and the use of, of some sort of tool to destroy weeds as opposed to some sort of chemistry pet petrochemically derived chemical and uh, you know these are things we can learn from legacy agriculture so i think uh, approaching possibilities with an open mind and saying that, you know, for example, as a for-profit business, we have ways we can be impactful that maybe nonprofits cannot. And one of them is that, a living wage job with benefits and, you know, employee ownership, involvement in the direction of the company, and these sorts of things. So I think that, you know, if, if folks are considering, you know, some sort of urban agriculture job, you know, to, to approach it from that, th th this is a business. And I think, you know, and, and, and acceptance, I think it's a pretty cool business. And I, you know, I've described to you today throughout this conversation, some of the really, really cool things about community building and impact and the tangible job we provide and food insecurity and food injustice and, and coming at this from a building bridges approach. Because um, I do feel like a lot of next generation or new entry can be um, judgmental at, at times. And it happens all across the board. But I want to say it out loud. I think it's important to say we can do this together. Two heads is better than one. And we've got to figure out ways to bridge the divides. 
you know, secondly, it's, it's tough. Um, you know, it's expensive in the city to do, you know, I'm going to, someone asked the other day, we have 30 sites in the Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, Dorchester, Roxbury, you know, the majority of them are, of our sites are sort of are out a little further. This It's not quite suburbia. It's still urban settings, you know, and then we've got a lot of residential and, and some stuff out in urban settings and things. So it's, you know, it's, but considering before, you know, you know, hey, being an entrepreneur sometimes includes, wow, you know, this is just so cool. I'm going to make it happen. But also there's some there's some thoughts and, and calculation that goes into it. So the future, this isn't going away. What we're doing is not going away. Vertical farming is not going away. Greenhouse agriculture is not going away. Local food production has to be a part of the future. You know, there's 100 calories in a head of romaine lettuce. And it costs around 30,000 calories of energy to ship it from the West Coast to Boston. So, you know, and you know, there's a lot of other metrics and calculus that goes into the efficiencies of large farms. And if you're doing smaller farms and running vehicles all over the place. how? But, you know, that and, it's, and it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that's where some of the dismissal or cancellation can come from is these things don't happen overnight. It's gonna take time. It's incremental to ameliorate these food systems and it's gonna take collaboration. And, and you know, we have to, you know, bring into consideration uh, a lot of different aspects of it. And so I do, I'm an idealist, I'm a dreamer, you know, I believe this to be true. I do this because I wanna help the people that I work with and help the community because I'm afraid of what's going on in the world and what we're doing to the climate and the planet. But we have to be realistic as peak population approaches, you know, and peak oil approaches. And the, you know, what are we doing to start to turn the corner here? And there are very large commercial organizations from Fidelity Investments and, and you know, BlackRock International. And, I, you know, they, I don't even really know much about them except to say that they are they ha- can influence board decision-making in a positive way. And they can say, you know, because of their influence in these areas. And, and actually, BlackRock just announced not too long ago that they are going to require a certain portion of their private equity companies, again, I'm not an expert in this, that they're going to not be able to greenwash, that they have to actually meet ESG benchmarks that are that are that are aligned with the United Nations sustainable 17 sustainable development goals. And ironically and interestingly, shortly after that, one of the benchmarking uh, private equity benchmarking companies or organizations in Europe delisted like 2000, I forget the number, a, a large number of private equity companies for greenwashing. So we've got to walk the walk and talk. Nothing's going to happen overnight here. And there's, you know, there are inefficiencies in vertical farming, the costs of energy, you know, LED lighting and then and the HVAC to keep these systems, you know, going up, but it's, but it's not going away. And there's going to be applications certainly in an educational environments and things like that. But greenhouse agriculture can make sense. And we've got to come together and start to figure out um, the best ways that we can support, you know, food production more locally. Okay, Chris, I am going to pause us there and we are going to return next week with the second half of this podcast episode. If you are a foodscaper or are just a person who grows food or is interested in growing food and you know of an amazing foodscaping company that you think should be highlighted on this podcast, please let us know. We would love to know who you want to hear from. Who should we be interviewing for season two? We'd love to hear from you. Please email us at info at the foodscaper.com. 
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Foodscaper Podcast. We will see you back in the Foodscape next week.